Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect interview where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Alan Rusbridger, the new-ish editor of Prospect magazine, and today I'm joined by Professor Samuel Moyne, who is Professor of both Law and History uh, at Yale, uh, and the author of a recent book, Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. And his is the uh, really interesting and provocative cover story for the most recent issue of Prospect, Uh, called How to Stop a New Cold War, for which he argues that Russia's grotesque invasion of Ukraine shouldn't blind us to the fact that Russia is a second-rate power with no path to the top. Sam, let's start. Um, I mean, your your argument is really that we should be wary of those looking at this war in Ukraine as an opportunity to rehabilitate failed ideas about how the world should be ordered. Just, just elaborate a bit on that. So in, in my lifetime, you've seen a kind of perpetual rehabilitation of an aggressive stance against sundry enemies and memories of World War II and, and, and a Cold War posture are, have been invoked so many times. Uh, and it gives moral clarity, especially when we see, you know, in today's new p- newspaper that Vladimir Putin's armies have committed, you know, horrendous atrocities. On the other hand, I worry that it's, it could open up an era of confrontation, not just with Russia, but with, you know, a a more implacable threat, China, uh, a more serious threat that could be as, as deadly as the cold war was the first time around. Just elaborate a bit on this, I mean, I, I think we're, we all start from from the uh, an agreement that this this war is terrible and unjustified, and you use the word grotesque. But at the same time, you go out of your way to try and remind readers that that Russia is, is not China. It's a relatively small economy and and not a very good army on the basis of <laughs> of how it's fought the war right. so far. So it's, it's I guess you're inviting us to keep a sense of proportion about what's going on. That's it. I've been very troubled by a couple of things. One is hyping the threat, um, you know, calling Putin the Hitler of our time or the Stalin of our era, when in fact, 
those leaders transform their countries into superpowers uh, and supervised massive growth, which meant military power beyond Putin's wildest dreams. Although, of course, he inherits the Soviet Union's nuclear weapons. But I, I, I do stress in the article how puny a power uh, uh, Russia is with a tenth of, of my country's domestic products or China's uh, gross domestic product or China's. Uh, it's on par with Australia or Brazil. Uh, and its its military spending is, of course, still significant, but about the percent that my country spends, the United States, and, you know, double that uh, of what Germany is now committed to spend. So we're, we're talking about a certain adversary fighting a regional war. And then beyond hyping the threat, there's this second concern I discuss in in the article, which is really the Manichaean rhetoric, as if Russia's a kind of exemplary of a much larger threat, which is called something like autocracy incorporated, which w- definitely would include China, but many other places, and treating it, it as a kind of unified adversary of which Putin would be the representative. And that's just wrong. I mean, it's, you know, P- Putin is a certain kind of enemy for the West and deserves to be dealt with in, you know, as he deserves. Uh, We can get into what that would mean. But the Cold War in which there was the same kind of unification of all threats into one, I think caused her, you know, terrible mistakes that the West shouldn't commit again. And and because this is such a delicate area, when when you're saying that we shouldn't fall into the trap of seeing this as good versus evil, it's more complicated than that. That's not to say that that Putin isn't evil. Um, Exactly. You wouldn't want your you wouldn't want your piece to be misunderstood (laughs) in any way trying to excuse. No, no, there are gradations of evil, and you know my my sense is that we should see each evil you know, in, in, in proper perspective, not understating it, but not overstating it and not kind of homogenizing it with all evil or evil as such. Remember, you know, we, George W. Bush spoke of the axis of evil, a same, a similar kind of homogenization. Um, and we know where that, that took the world. Uh, and so, you know, my concern is that we, confront Putin as the the evil that he represents, which is to be kept in perspective. Because when we when we treat ourselves as white knights in a world of darkness, I think we, we tend to make mistakes and and really, you know, we are not the people who pay the consequences of that posture as the Cold War showed. To, to talk us through for the, the non American citizens the kind of drift of the the op eds and the and the and the people going on talk shows and the the the, 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 the I suppose the consensus consensus narrative around this war in America. If, if there is well, one. I think you have to distinguish between the, the president and his his staff, who I think have been quite measured and restrained, uh, and a certain kind of. Um, subculture of opinion that 
in general and in the last generation or several actually have treated wars as opportunities for moral clarity and maximalist responses. And the most notorious voices in that respect have been the neoconservatives um, who have treated Putin's aggressive war, which it certainly is, as an opportunity for redemption. And I mean, one actually published an article saying neoconservatism has been vindicated and others have engaged in the hyping on, you know, worried about treating Putin as like Hitler or Stalin, not keeping his threat in perspective and embracing Biden's rhetoric and, you know, the rhetoric of other Western politicians that really do treat the, the current struggle in Eastern Europe as just one part of a vast confrontation of good and evil. When the truth is, as we know, um, if we think about democracy and autocracy as, you know, us versus them, we forget that our democracies haven't been doing that well. Frankly, democracies in Eastern Europe, which we've incorporated in our, our front against Putin, have, have especially not been doing very well. And maybe we need to have as much attention towards the fact that we, we haven't yet brought good enough democracies about. And if we want to you know, struggle with uh, authoritarian states, I think we need to be, have more exemplary democracies to present to the kind of world public than we've done lately. I'd love to unpack that a bit. So, um, I mean, you say, uh, you know, we should we should sort of question more intensely how Trump comes about or how Brexit comes about. So uh, I, I, I take that to mean that you, you feel that actually if we're going to present ourselves as model democracies, why is it that uh, we keep recreating these populist moments? Um, can you just unpack that a bit? I think that's right. I was very glad to discover a speech from Franklin Roosevelt in, in writing uh, you know, The Peace for You, which I, I wish I'd known about, frankly, years ago, because ever since Brexit and Trump, you've had a certain rhetoric of how democracy is in crisis and has to be pulled back from the brink. And there's there's been a debate about what that means. Um, but at least it involved a hard look at what's happened to democracy in the West, why it might be that some of its citizens are rejecting it or at least taking up stances that many of us have found troubling and roosevelt you know says if you say you're for saving democracy as so many commentators have in recent years you're you're really interested in saving things as they were not recognizing that you need to finally act to make democracy worthy of support which is of course what roosevelt's new deal really did uh, and I think we we haven't had that response to Brexit and Trump. And the, the Ukraine crisis allows us to wriggle off the hook, if you will. It, it allows us to externalize the threat once again when there are scary people abroad, but there are angry voters at home, too. And we need to figure out how to make democracy worthy of the name for them. And in a confrontation with China, which is certainly coming 
uh, and which our politicians have in, embraced in the last five years, I think we need, instead of fighting with China or competing with China, first of all, to make de Western democracy more attractive to more people, not just abroad, but at home. At one point in the article, you quote Robert Gates, the former defense secretary, Putin's invasion of Ukraine has ended Americans 30 year holiday from history. And you say the truth is, of course, that while on this extended vacation, the West has initiated many special military operations, adopting Putin's phrase, uh, of its own. I, I suppose you might be accused of moral relativism in, in saying that. Um, do, do you want to defend yourself against that charge? I don't think that's a, a fair a fair charge in the sense that I'm I'm accusing. Uh, Two two states, Russia's and my own, or Russia's and the broader West, uh, of violating the same moral universal and 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 universal principle, which is that you don't get to invade other people's countries. Now, it may be it may be fairer to say I'm in, engaging in in what we, we call on Twitter both sidesism or whataboutism. But I think it's quite important to, to do so, not to, you know, as Putin has done in his own speeches, suggest that two wrongs make a right as if it's okay to invade other countries simply because the West has done so serially, as if it's, you know, it's now a norm to overthrow governments, engage in regime change just because the West has done the same on several occasions. But I think it just is really important for us to use uh, this as an opportunity to reflect on our, our own policies uh, and and to remember that when we engage in, in you know, Western intervention and regime change, uh, we're, we're creating the chance for others to, to use our acts as pretexts for their own and cite them in justification for their own, which is, after all, what Putin did in his irate rant a few weeks ago when he he talked in the language of international law. Uh, and actually, today is a really interesting moment because we're discovering Putin's violation of another part of international law, not the part that prohibits aggressive war, but the part that prohibits you know grievous atrocity or even genocide and there that that's what's dominating the press as we're speaking and it's all it's completely fair on the other hand we've been party to atrocity as well and yet we haven't punished uh you know our own leaders and service members and so i think it's just really important that we see ourselves uh, in the mirror and not just hold up a light on uh, to, you know, show show how terrible Putin is, which is, is it's really important to do that, but not as if we haven't made our own mistakes. There is, uh, I think, underlying through or threaded through your piece, a, a, a sense of hope that out of all of this there there might be what you call a new internationalism and elsewhere in the magazine we've got a, a piece about how Europe has in the space of a month been uh, united by this and, and lots of things that were quite dysfunctional uh, are now working better. 
but I'm old enough to remember <laughs> the fall of the Berlin Wall, and I remember commissioning a series then called A New World Order, and lots of distinguished right. people wrote about that. Are you really optimistic that a, a new internationalism could come out of this, and what would it look like? Well, I'll be honest, I was more optimistic before because I think there had been a rising tide of opinion that recognized that we, we did create a new world order after 1989, but it was one in which there were was really a quite staggering number of Western interventions and an international economic order that we now call neoliberal, which promoted the rich and not the rest. Um, and that helps account among many other factors for Brexit and Trump. And so it, it seemed as if we, we were coming towards a new consensus that, you know, at a, at a golden moment of opportunity with the fall of communism, we erred and we could rethink what it would mean to have a better internationalism, more more with more restraint for great powers, especially militarily, and more economic fairness. Uh, uh, and and I think Ukraine, in a sense, sets that project back maybe for decades or a generation. But it's true that if people take seriously that what happened in Ukraine is not just Putin's intervention, but a a kind of crest on a rising tide of intervention. And they come to see that democracy deserves defense, but only if we rescue it from neoliberalism first, then we could have a much better future. And so a lot's at stake in how we respond to this new moment of crisis, because every crisis is an opportunity to reinvent ourselves. You warn explicitly against comparisons with 1938, 1939, and the, and the Second World War. Do you think right. there are comparisons to be made with the aftermath of the First World War and the sort of Versailles moment? And what kind of settlement do you think could, in your imagination, because everything is, as we speak, uh, clouded in, in um, uncertainty, but how would we avoid that kind of mistake of, we know Russia has got this immense sense of persecution and grievance. What would a generous settlement look like? I'm not sure we should think in terms of generosity, although I think it's extremely important to keep in mind the roles that a, a kind of nationalist piece at the end of World War I, um, kind of honoring the self-determination of peoples, at least in Eastern Europe. And of course, the extraordinary, you know, g guilt, guilt clause and war debt that were imposed on Germany. You know, th those are things I think to, to remember about Western policy. But obviously, we're not in position to arrange the destiny of Eastern Europe, just because we there's no prospect, no one thinks there is, of a complete defeat of our adversaries, um, as happened at the end of, of World War I, um, when multiple empires fell. Um, I think that we, we have to take steps, at least in the short term, towards a more realist piece, thinking about, as you know, Volodymyr Zelensky has been thinking, I think, as, as publicly as he can, I'm not sure he's got as a big Western audience in terms of um, some kind of 
you know, settlement to try to acknowledge that um, a, a NATO that comes up to the very borders of Russia uh, is not one that, you know, will be able to avoid, you know, military self-defense any more than, you know, a big alliance that came up to American borders would. Um, and that's why Zelensky has been very open about making clear that Ukraine won't join NATO. There's going to obviously be discussion about, you know, approving retroactively Russia's, you know, illegal conquest of the Crimea. And of course, there are going to be step, final status issues surrounding those eastern provinces. I I think you know it's widely accepted, and you know when when uh, we're not so horrified by the atrocities that are being unveiled, that that's that's the nature of the peace that will have to be made. Um, I think there are longer term debates to be had about what to do about Russia, especially if we don't think that Putin will ever be satisfied with that kind of stasis. But I'm not sure there's, you know, there's an alternative piece, you know, regionally we have available. That's why the point of my article is to warn against girding for a kind of, you know, decades long cold war against autocracy as such, because the truth is we don't know how to deal with foreign autocracy. We've tried. We've tried replacing governments. We've tried sanctioning governments. We've tried, uh, you know, all manner of things, and we don't have good solutions. All we know is that when we unify them and declare a kind of global war against an axis of evil, we set the world back, and we set our the cause of freedom and democracy back. And so... I have a much better sense of what the mistake, the likeliest mistakes are once we zoom out from the regional piece that will be in the offing sooner or later. You you make the point that some of the responses from the global south have been uh, a bit more measured and um, constructive, I suppose is the word, than, than some, of, some of the responses come from the global north. Yes. I think they've been less hypocritical above all, because they they are not willing to scapegoat Putin for everyone's sins when there have been a lot of great power interventions. Uh, and actually, the global South, you know, did try in the 1970s to kind of strengthen norms of non-intervention and was rebuffed. And since 1989, we've seen a rising tide of intervention which includes Russia's very prominently. Um, but the so global South has no stake in uh, pretending that, you know, any, any of the great powers stands, you know, in some unblemished way for democracy or freedom. And I think the same is true of their, their views about economics, uh, because they've, they've borne the brunt of, you know, structural adjustment and other, programs that have spread markets very well, democracy not so much. So I, I I don't think any actor out there is perfect, but I think we look to the relatively weaker actors for less cynicism and less hypocrisy and less rhetoric that exempts the speaker from the very crimes of which they're accusing their great power adversary. Uh, a couple more questions. Um 
One is about China. You've, you've mentioned China already, and you've said the United States in particular should change its its rhetoric and its, its tone to China, and I suppose things have improved somewhat since President Trump. Nevertheless, China is a difficult ally for any president, but, but what steps can you see uh, to making that a better relationship, and what dangers do you see from Ukraine? Because uh, lots of people are trying to read across and saying, oh, well, it's going to be Taiwan next. Exactly. Well, I, I think that those who are kind of thinking in the broadest perspective, and I'd certainly try in the article you commissioned, really do see Ukraine as some kind of dry run for China where, you know, successes that we, you know, come up with can be, you know, broadened. And by the same token, you know, disasters and mistakes uh, can get globalized. Um you know, there's just a stark contrast, as we've already said, between Russia, which is at the limit of its possible ambitions geopolitically, and China, which is somewhere in the middle of, you know, the greatest rise to power in really centuries. And, you know, there's there's an end in sight, but it's not soon. Um, in contrast to Russia, China will, you know, pass American you know, gross domestic product within a decade, very likely. Um, it it doesn't have the same military posture uh, towards the rest of the world. It's very unclear, actually, what its, you know, geopolitics are, what its global designs are. But what's what I think has been most significant to me is that Trump did um, turn the West and certainly the United States towards a posture of confrontation with China, with a lot of kind of economic war talk and, and genuine war talk. And actually, Biden and, and the, the, his Democratic Party have generally taken Trump's line with just a, a, a little modification. And so, you know, really the main purpose of the article uh, is to say that we, if we do unify autocracies across borders, and sweep China into some syndrome that Putin represents. I think we risk the worst mistakes we can make, which are military confrontation, failure to accept that China's in the ascent and a multipolar world is coming. And we have to learn to live in it in a world in which it's not just the you know North Atlantic that dominates uh, that enjoys riches, but that all kinds of peoples, you know, are are ushering in a very different world than those that Americans and Europeans designed over the last couple of centuries. And as soon as we embrace that, and I, I hope it's a good thing. Um, although, of course, we want to ensure that liberalism and democracy not only survive in that world, but thrive. Well, the sooner we, you know, try to aim for those outcomes, the better. A final question, which is really, I, I mentioned at the beginning, you're both a lawyer and a historian. Um, and I don't know if you've read Philippe Sanz's book, East West Street, which uh, begins in Lvov, Lvov, Lviv, um, whatever it was called at different times in the last 70 yes, years. Lundberg, and, yeah. And th th this was really the place from which the big debate about war crimes and genocide and how these um, atrocities right. should be dealt with. What what do you hope will 
follow in a legal sense from from this once god willing the war is over well i i admire philippe and and his book and i reviewed it in the wall street journal when it appeared but i would fault it on one point which is that uh, w- crimes against humanity and genocide indeed war crimes that violate standards of the conduct of hostilities were not at the center of the Nuremberg trials in 1945 and six rather aggressive war crimes against peace was what mattered most to people. Uh, uh, And that includes victims because it was widely understood that if you ban, deter, stop the initiation of war, you don't have to deal with the consequences, which include war crimes, but also a lot of legal things like the killing of soldiers, the misspending of money, the destabilization of regions. And I think we've just forgotten that old truth. Um, And we've forgotten it long before Putin invaded Crimea or Russia. We forgot it in our own actions in starting a lot of wars that have not just been atrocious, but killed a lot of soldiers, misspent a lot of money, and destabilized one very big region, the Middle East. So my hope is that Putin has, in a sense, inadvertently given us a gift that we remember that we once tried to uh, set up a gateway against you know aggressive war and keep it guarded for for fear that any state would run roughshod through it and with all the terrible consequences. So I'd like to see legally some way of keeping our attention fixed on the worst thing Putin has done, the worst thing we have also done, which is start illegal wars that set the world back. And if that's if if there's some outcome, whether in the International Criminal Court or in a reformed United Nations, or in some kind of special tribunal that's consistent in its justice that revives our sense that war is generally not to be fought. It almost never makes things better than I think, you know, we'll have, we will have responded in the best way to this particular crisis. That's a great note on which to end. Um, Sam, I know you're uh, currently in Kathmandu and you're about to embark on what you euphemistically call a steep walk. Um, that sounds <laughs> far from my idea of a holiday, but good luck with the, uh, with the steep walk. Um, that's all from us. Thank you so much, Sam, for joining us. Thank you all very much for tuning in to hear our discussion. If you enjoyed this podcast, Escape the Echo Chamber and grab a copy of the new magazine, Prospect Magazine, with Sam's fascinating essay in it. It's available on newsstands now. Or go to subscription.prospectmagazine, all one word, .co.uk to subscribe. Goodbye, stay safe, and listen out for the next episode of the Prospect Podcast next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.